we before we pray, I just want to make a quick announcement because I don't like doing announcements in prayer. So um, Joel is leaving, going back to faith. And so on January 6th, that'll be his last Sunday. We'll have a, a going away party for him. We're looking for a, a long-term person to take the position. Um, but in the meantime, we've been richly blessed because Kyle has agreed to take over and do it for as long as is needed. Um, so that's just a huge blessing. So I want to pray about that, but I didn't want to like spring it on you in the middle of the announcement. So let's go to the word in prayer, or let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're grateful again for the Christmas season. Um, it's dual purpose in our culture. It's uh, commercial appeal and Santa Claus and uh, snow and joy and all of that um, allows us as Christians in the middle of that culture to celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, which is the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we get to sneak in things like Christmas carols and, and um, this message of joy for the whole world. So thank you, Lord, for creating that space for your church in Western culture to experience that. And actually throughout the world, I've, I've heard many people in many different countries celebrate Christmas because it's such a joyful time. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for get, leaving us that, uh, that opportunity. And Father, I want to pray for um, our brothers and sisters who aren't currently with us. I pray for uh, Bob Kempel, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to renew his strength and help him to uh, be back up on his feet. Uh, Lord, it's our uh, heartfelt desire to have him come and worship with us again. Um, I know he would be happy to go home and be with you, but um, we're, we're being a little selfish, and we would love our brother back. So, Lord, would you continue to strengthen and heal him? Thank you for Judy and her patience and, and love for her husband. I pray that she would be a source of strength for him as well and that your blessing would be on her too. Uh, Father, we want to pray for Bob Burris as he's finishing up teaching in Liberia and Syria, Sierra Leone. And uh, we pray that the time he has spent there would have um, really benefited the pastors in, in those African nations, strengthen them in preaching your word and help them to resist the lure of the prosperity gospel, which is so strong there. And instead, Lord, preach the better news that uh, Jesus Christ is King. So, Lord, would you bless those nations and help those people? Father, we want to pray for the folks that we caroled to last night. Um, there were many people that answered the doors and, and um, some folks that uh, greeted us with tears. And, Lord, we just pray that the, the Christmas message as we presented it, as we sang and, and just brought some hope and some cheer, Lord, would uh, touch many lives. And, Lord, you would use uh, your, your church and Christmas carols and the witness and all of that in, in, uh, in people's lives to draw them to a true joy, a lasting joy, a joy that can't be taken away because um, uh, creature comforts fail and, and health fades, but uh, something greater. And so, Lord, would you be with them? And Father, we want to praise you and thank you for the time that you've given us with uh, Joel and Ashley, and thank you for their service to us and their friendship and just the, the, the great influence they've had for us. And we pray that you would bless them in their next uh, leg of their journey with you, whatever it is you're calling them to. Thank you for Kyle being willing to step up and lead. We pray that you would bless his time. And Lord, would you lead us to who that next person is who will help us to worship you better, who structure our time and, and help us to, uh, to sing praises to you, but also songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. And Lord, we want that because we want more of you. Uh, so Lord, we ask that in Christ's name. And we, we ask you now to be with us in this passage, in this, um, this uh, amazing story of Elijah, your prophet. Help us to understand and to apply the message to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When um, my kids were little, about a thousand years ago, um, I used to love to read the Chronicles of Narnia to them. We had the, the books in the box and we would go through them all. 
And, uh, and it was just a, a fun thing to do is to read to the kids like that. Um, one of the characters in there uh, is introduced this way. This is from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So Eustace is kind of the star of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he is, he, he almost deserves that name. He is really just a brat. But the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is his conversion. He meets Aslan, and he has a tremendous conversion experience. And so when, when he finishes that book, Eustace is a different person. So the next book in, in the series is The Silver Chair. And when Eustace appears then, this is how Lewis introduces him. His name, unfortunately, was Eustace Scrub, but he wasn't a bad sort. He's a different person. And so what happens in the story is, is uh, Eustace bumps into a girl named Jill Pole, and they're at a school together. And Jill, Jill is hiding behind the gym and crying because them, the bullies of the school, have been picking on her and they're looking for her. So Eustace finds her and they're now fleeing from the bullies who are coming after them. And he explains to her about Narnia and Aslan and maybe we could go there. And Jill says, well, I'm, I'm willing to try. But the problem is you don't go to Narnia, you are brought to Narnia. And so here's how uh, the exchange happens. Eustace suggests they try to go. And Jill says, do you mean do something to make it happen? Eustace nodded. You mean we might draw a circle on the ground and write things in queer letters in it and stand in it and recite charms and spells? Well, said Eustace after he thought hard for a bit, I believe that was the sort of thing I was thinking of, though I never did it. But now it comes to the point, I've an idea that those circles and things are rather rot. I don't think he would like them. It would look like we thought we could make him do things, but really we can only ask him. And of course him is Aslan, the great lion. And of course they do ask him. And of course Aslan answers and they go to Narnia, otherwise it'd be a really short book. They just get beat up by the bullies. But Eustace makes an excellent point there. You can't do things to make God behave the way you want him to. And this is a theme that goes throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. When we're first introduced to Aslan, a talking beaver explains it to a girl named Susan. And she said, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I'd rather thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So the introduction, the, the, the theme that runs through the books is Aslan is a lion. He's not tame. He's going to be and do the things that he does. But the hope in all of that is he's good. And so this morning, when we look at this story about um, Elijah, what we're going to see is God here is not tame. He's not going to respond the way that Elijah or we think he should necessarily. But by the time we get to the end of the story, we're going to say, oh my gosh, God is so good. He's going to appear in forms and ways that we wouldn't anticipate. But in the end, he's going to be so good and so kind. So when we go through this story, there's, there's kind of three movements in it. There's a threat, then there's a retreat, and then there's the commission. So let me set up the story. Elijah is a prophet in Israel. Um, the nation of Israel has split in two. There's the southern tribes of Judah, the northern tribes of Israel, 
The Northern tribes have never been faithful. They've always been horrible. The kind of uh, literary pinnacle of evilness in the Northern kingdoms is portrayed as Ahab. He's just rotten. And his wicked wife, Jezebel, they have introduced Baal worship. They've introduced false worship into the land and kind of made it the, the official religion of the land. And so God is speaking to Ahab through Elijah. And of course, there's tension between the two. There's, there's struggle. And so what happens is um, Elijah pronounces that there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be any rain. And it happens. And then God tells him to go talk to, uh, to Ahab again. And so Elijah comes to Ahab, Ahab and he says, here's what we're going to do. You gather all the prophets of Baal, all the priests of Baal, and bring them up on the mountain, and they'll set up an altar and bring a sacrifice. And whichever God takes the sacrifice, that will be the true God. That will be the God that you worship. And so Ahab agrees, and they go up on this hill, and they set up their, their altar, and they put the wood on the altar, and they put the offerings on the altar, and the priests start calling on, oh, Baal, oh, Baal, come, take this offering, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. And Elijah just lets him go all day. He just sits and watch. And as a matter of fact, he gets to a certain point where he begins to talk to him. He goes, well, maybe you need to call out louder. Maybe he's on a trip, or he's relieving himself. You know, Keep going, keep going. And, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. So when it's his turn, he says, build an altar, and they build an altar. Lay on the wood, they lay on the wood. Lay on the sacrifice, lay on the sacrifice. Now dig a trench around this altar. What? They dig a trench around the altar. Now pour water on. Now pour more water on. Now pour more. There is no way in the world this thing's going to light on fire. It is saturated top to bottom. And Elijah turns to God and he says, Lord, hear my prayer. And fire falls down from heaven. And the way it's explained, it consumes, first of all, the offering, then the wood, then the altar, then the ground underneath it, and it licks up all the water in the trench. I mean, it's just this incredible inferno that falls from heaven. And Elijah then turns to the people and he says, now, choose this day who you're going to follow. Who's the real God? And kill all the prophets of Baal. And so the people turn and slaughter them all. And then Elijah takes off because he's, he's afraid of what he's just done, I think. So he takes off, and that's where it picks up the threat to him. Ahab returns, and he tells Jezebel, she's kind of large and in charge, um, like uh, the, the bigger head of the family. He tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of the lives of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So what happens is Jezebel has no fear of God. She just had, she is so dedicated to Baal. She has no fear of God. That demonstration you think would change every heart in the, in the land, wouldn't it? Fire fell from heaven. It didn't just consume the altar or the offering. It took up the whole altar, which is all stone. And yet she's like, may the gods, not even call him on God's name, but multiple gods. If, if they don't do to me what I'm about to do to you, or if I don't do to you what I'm about to, then may they do that to me. And so it terrifies him. And, and some of the scholars think, well, there's no way that he had such a great ministry experience that this fire from heaven fell. And then he turns around and he runs away afraid. And I'm like, have you met people? Do you know actual human beings? There's a story I, I've heard about um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, great. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon in his day 
they would telegraph his sermon across the pond over here, and they would publish his sermon as he preached it in the New York Times. He was a tremendous evangelist, and yet he would preach, and he would have these great experiences, and then he would slide into this deep funk, this real depression would set over him when he had his greatest ministry expenses experiences. So I don't think this is out of line. I don't think this, so this sounds a lot like me. <laughs> I would do something like this, have a great thing and then be terrified. So let's, let's cut Elijah some slack here. So that's the threat. And so he takes off to Beersheba, leaves his servant there, and then he heads out a day's journey into the wilderness. So he goes even farther. He's heading further away. And as he gets there, he sits under a broom tree. I don't know what that is. I would imagine it's one of those trees that you would cut a branch off and use like a broom, but I'm not sure. Whatever it is, he sits under it and he says to God, it's enough now. Take my life away for I'm no better than my father's. This man is in a deep depression. He is terrified for his life and he has slid into a deep funk. And so how does the Lord respond to him? Buck up, come on, you can do this. He lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise, eat. And when he opened his eyes, at his head is a, is a, um, a jar of water, and on a stone is, is cooking a piece of, of bread, a cake. So he wakes up, and he eats, and he drinks, and he falls back asleep. And it happens a second time, elbows him, here, eat and drink. He says, For the journey is too great for you. And so he arose and he ate and he drank and he went away in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. So God, what is the God, first thing God does for this poor man? Take a nap. The second thing, eat some food. It's like a Jewish mom. Eat some food. It's good for you. Or, or an Italian mom. Oh, I have some more. He's taking care of him. And then he takes off. It's time for him to move again. So he's on the move and he goes to Mount Horeb, to the Mount of God. And this is the commission. This is the, the big part of the story. It's the longest part. And I think it's the most interesting. There he comes to a cave, goes up on Mount Horeb, and he finds a cave, and he lodges in it. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? When God asks you a question, it's not asking because he doesn't know. He's not asking for himself. He's asking for you. He's drawing this response out of Elijah. How are you feeling now, Elijah? Where are you at emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Where are you? What are you doing here? And this is the diagnosis. And, and um, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am the only, only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. So he's, he's not recovered. He's still in this state of, um, of panic, of, of, of feeling defeated. It's all over. And so the Lord says, go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. This is why we're preaching this in, a, in an Advent series on theophanies, is God's about to show up. Actually, he already did, but we'll get back to that in a minute. So he goes and he stands on the, on the uh, mount before the Lord, and the, the uh, Lord um, asks him again, he asks him a second time, why are you here? And he explains why. And then God moves before him and he says um, that the Lord passed by and it was a great and strong wind and it tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. So this huge wind, we know about wind here in the Antelope Valley. Imagine a wind that came through so strong, it's throwing rocks and crashing them and breaking them apart, tearing up the, the countryside. 
And Elijah sees that, and you would think, well, this must be God passing by. This, this must be this show of power, but he says God's not in it. So the wind passes by, and then after the wind, an earthquake. And we know about earthquakes too, don't we? By his mercy, we haven't had one for a while, but earthquakes can be startling. And he hears this earthquake. He feels this earthquake rumbling through the valley, and he says that that's, God's not in that. And after that, then a fire comes through. And he says, God's not in that fire. And then what does he hear? A low whisper. Or as the King James used to say, a still small voice. It's just this low silence. And that's when he goes, now God's here. And he covers his head. And that's when God asks him again, what are you doing here? And he explains it again. And, and this is where God says, okay, now you've had your rest. You've had some time in prayer with me. We've talked. Now comes the commission. After he explains, I'm the only one left and they seek my life, God doesn't reassure him. God doesn't rebuke him. God just says, go. Here's what I want you to do. I'm not done with you yet. I know you said earlier, take my life. I'm done. Kill me. I'm not finished with you yet. Go. Return on your way in the wilderness to Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So the first thing is go to a foreign, uh, foreign king and anoint him as king. Go to this foreigner outside of Israel. And then when you return, uh, go to Jehu, the son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint him king over Israel. What does that say about Ahab? Not looking good for Ahab at this point. And then you're released. Go and anoint Elisha. I say Elisha. It's Elijah and Elisha. Just too close for me, so I say Elisha. I hope that's okay. Go anoint Elisha. He's going to take your place. And then God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in the end, the message to Elijah is, first of all, I'm not finished with you yet. I have work for you to do. Go to the nations, go to the people, and go find your substitute. And you're not alone. You may feel alone. You may feel isolated. You may feel cut off. But there are 7,000 I've preserved in Israel who haven't bowed the knee. And so that's how this, this portion of the story ends. So that's the story. Now, how does that fit in? What are we supposed to learn from this? I was, I was telling Dan this morning, this is a hard passage to preach because there is so much in there. There are so many great things to bring out of this. There's, there's a lot about who God is. There's a lot about what we're supposed to do. There's a whole bunch there. So this morning when I woke up, what I did was just start pulling this out and that out. We don't need to cover that. We don't need to cover this. It's hard to narrow it down. So if I don't cover something that you think is there, that's probably intentional. I'll just go ahead and claim it. That's intentional. I did that on purpose. Don't be surprised. So here's Elisha, Elijah, rather. Elijah is ready to die. He's finished. And God's answer to him is not rebuke. It's not, man, who do you think you are? And, and calling him out for sin. What Elijah needed at that moment was rest. He had, he had been on the go for quite a while. He came to this, this massive undertaking with the, the conf confrontation with the prophets Baal, of Baal, and, and God just says, you just need a rest. Now, that's encouraging because what it tells us is we are not just spiritual beings. We're physical beings too. And God doesn't just deal with us on a spiritual level. He also understands our physicality. He built us this way. Sabbath is not a post-fall ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. We were built from the very beginning to rest. 
And so what God does is he addresses, first of all, Elijah's physical need. You need a nap. Go lay down for a bit. And then he says, now you need some food. You need something to sustain yourself. I built you to eat. Remember the promise in the covenant, in the garden before they, the fall was, eat from any tree that you want except for that one. So eating is a pre-fall condition too. It's a good thing. God is, is inviting him into this, recognizing his humanity and saying, now go ahead and eat and take it easy and rest. This is really encouraging because it reminds us we are both body and soul, physical and spiritual. There's, there's a, a, a saying that gets kicked around the internet. We are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And that's recently has been attributed to C.S. Lewis. First of all, it's not C.S. Lewis. And second of all, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. We are not uh, spiritual beings having a physical experience. Uh, because when God made us, what did he say? In Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, physical, and breathed the breath of the spirit into his uh, nostrils, the spirit or the breath of life. And when you had together the physical portion that the dust made into the shape of a man and the spiritual portion breathed in, then it says, and then the man became a living creature. So first of all, God is fully aware of our physicality, our physical nature, our physical needs, and he meets them and he delights to meet them. He's, he's glad to do that. So pay attention to yourself when you're in a spiritual funk, when you're hitting a spiritual low, it's kind of dry. Maybe what you need at that moment is a nap. Maybe that's what you need and pray. And, and then maybe what you need to do is have a decent meal, find something good. Lisa reminds me, eat something green once in a while. I, I, I'm from the Midwest. Brown is the natural color of food, and that's what you eat. So it's good every once in a while to eat something live and green and healthful. Eat and then fast. Go on a walk. God created this world in three dimensions. He made us three-dimensional in it, and he expects us to go out and experience. Go out and take a walk up in the mountains or just around a neighborhood or something like that. And then when you get back, sit down and read the scriptures. Have some quiet alone time. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of an introvert. And so sometimes I need to get alone and just recharge and be by myself. Um, sometimes the walk will do that, but sometimes it's best to just be alone like that. But then he also created us in community. So worship and study with other people too. Pay attention to all of who you are. If you're having a spiritual funk, it's not just spiritual. It could be the physical portion of you influencing that too. So pay attention. That's God just demonstrated that to us. How did he diagnose and help Elijah? Physically, before he dealt with him spiritually. So Elijah, he's convinced that his ministry is over. I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away too. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound kind of personal? The church in America now is under attack. They, they, they've all abandoned the truth and they're all turning aside and, and we, we're the only ones left. And, and we get this kind of defeatist attitude in it. We kind of begin to think, you know, the, the, the church, look at this, church X over there is compromised. They've, they've sold out. They're, they're doing all kinds of goofy stuff. Church Y is 
just drunk deep of the politics, and that's all they talk about. And this little church of ours, we're the only ones left. I got tremendous news for you. What God told Elijah was, there are 7,000, 7,000 you don't know anything about that I have preserved for myself. So when, when the church in America feels ascendant and, and we have a voice and we have a place in the world, that's great. But when that goes away, we're not lost. God is still ruling. He's still on the throne. He's still in control. So Elijah, don't worry about it. I've preserved 7,000. And by the way, Elijah, I have a mission for you. I expect you to go to the nations. I expect you to go to Samaria. I expect you to go to Judah and look for your replacement. Your mission's not over. Don't feel defeated. Don't be defeatist. So this is that beautiful message from that. And, and how does this then tie into Advent? How does this, this connect with us with Advent series on, on theophanies? Well, Elijah's not the only person who met God on a mountain. There's another story of somebody meeting God on a mountain, and that's Moses in Exodus 34, 33 and 34. He goes up on Mount Sinai. God hides him in a cleft of a rock and passes before him. And actually, the stories are the same. Mount Sinai is Mount Horeb. And that, that where he says he put him in a, in a cleft or in a cave, or, or Elijah went and hid in a cave, the word for cave there is kind of just generic hiding place. And so some theologians and some commentators think that the cleft that Moses was in is the same cave that Elijah was in. I don't think it really matters. It's, it's unimportant. But what happens with Moses is very similar. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God's response to Moses is, no man can see my face and live. So what I'll do is I'll put you in this cleft of a rock and I'll cover my hand as my glory passes before you. And you can look at me as I go past. And that's when he, it's a similar kind of thing. This, this majestic, huge presence of the Lord passes through this valley. And so when you can bring these two together, you, this is where I, I brought in Eustace Scrub and his experience with Aslan is when it says in Elijah, or when Elijah's story says, God wasn't in the earthquake and God wasn't in the wind and God wasn't in the fire. It doesn't mean God can never be in those things. It doesn't mean God is never that because Moses' experience was much more violent, much bigger than a still small voice that Elijah heard. When God appears, he appears as is needed at the moment. What is best for the situation? What will convey his glory the greatest to the people? Elijah didn't need another power experience. He needed that closeness, that quiet, that intimacy with God. Moses got the big thing. He got the huge thing. And so that's the, the two kind of come together that way. They kind of connect. Is there another place in the Bible you can think of where Moses and Elijah are together on a mountain and happen to see God's glory? Mount Trans, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before them. His face glows. His divinity is beginning to shine through that veil of flesh that he is. And standing behind him are, or standing beside him are Elijah and Moses. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his departure. Now, does that mean, well, when you go down the mountain, you want to make sure that you stick to the left, because on the right, that's not what they mean by his departure. They were preparing for his death on the cross. And Moses and Elijah are talking about that. So when, when this happens, I, I read someplace, somebody kind of jokingly said, 
Wouldn't it be interesting if Moses and Elijah were temporarily displaced and their experience with God on the mountain was that this actually this encounter with Jesus on the mountain that they happened at the same time? Just I'm sorry, I'm nerding out. (laughs) It's a little science fiction thing. I just thought that was kind of cool. Probably not true. But they meet Jesus and they talk about that from these two very different experiences. And so who else is available on that mountain? Peter, James, and John. So what you get is you get the law in Moses, you get the prophets in Elijah, and you get the church standing before Jesus talking about his departure. And what did Jesus, what did God tell, I'm going to go ahead and say Jesus, because you know who, you know who poked him and, and woke him up and gave him some food? The angel of the Lord. Do you remember how we met the angel of the Lord last week? That was that, that ambiguous angel that is God, but not God. And by the way, I want to put this on record now because it didn't get on the tape last week, on the recording last week. Last week, I made the mistake of saying Jesus is not God. I meant Jesus is not the Father. Not He is God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So I just wanted that on, on record. So if anybody listens and goes, the man's a heretic, I've got fallback. So the angel of the Lord shows up on the mountain, and he deals with uh, Elijah. And so when, when Elijah meets him in the future, in Jesus' physical body on the mountain, his commission rings true for Elijah. Go to the nations, go to Samaria, and go to find your replacement. What's he going to tell those men standing before him on the mountain from the church? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the same mission. It's the same commission. And so that's where Advent comes in, is Jesus comes in physical form. He comes as a human being with with real human nature, and he does the exact same thing he'd been doing. He commissions his people in a moment of his glory. And so that reminds us of what Eustace said. I don't think he'd like it. It would look as if we thought we might make him do things, but really all we can do is ask. So when Jesus tells us, go make disciples, we can't make him make it work our way. We can't make him make it look like we want. If we get the right program, if we have the right structure in our church, if we get the right person leading worship, if we get the right person preaching, if we get the right message, the right branding, all of that, then it'll work. I don't think Jesus would like that. I agree with Eustace. I think what we have to do is pay attention to those things because they matter and ultimately go, Jesus, you told us to go make disciples. You told us to baptize them. You told us to teach them. And the promise ends with, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And so, Lord, that's what we're counting on. And that's why this has to do with Advent. That's what ties into these other theophanies is Jesus has come in the person, in the flesh, standing in front of us. He commissions us. He sends us. He's aware of our physicality. God knew of our physicality beforehand. Now he's, he's experienced it. Jesus has lived as a human being. Go. Make disciples. That's what he's, he's commissioned us to do. And so next week on Christmas morning, we'll go back and we'll look at that final theophany, the ultimate theophany, when God is born in a manger. And I think that's the incredible one. I think that's more astonishing than than wind tearing up mountains and fire raging through and earthquakes is a little baby laying in a manger by the sheer exertion of his will holding an entire universe together. That's the mind blower. Let's close in prayer.